1: Sit back and relax while we plant the seeds of weird and wonderful science directly into the soil of your fertile imagination. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we feature a blast from Diffusion's past, digitised from audio compact cassette and recorded in the days when we were broadcasting live from the studios of 2SER as the Discovery Science Show. This episode is from the 16th of November in the year 1999, where the sound quality was variable and cassette tape changed the way voices sounded. In this episode, we investigated women in science, the mind switch, and quantum computing. David Blank reported news of Martian probes and exoplanets. Here's Discovery 1999.
0: Hi, this is Douglas Adams, I'm the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and I'm here to urge you to listen to the National Science Programme on Discovery.
3: This is Discovery, two sers National Science Show, where science, arts and culture meet to educate, inform and entertain. I'm Carol Oliver. On this edition, we'll look at the issues facing women in science at machines that respond directly to human thought and explore quantum computing. But first up, the news with David Blank.
2: NASA's Deep Space two microprobes to the South Pole of Mars have been named Admonston and Scott in honor of the first explorers to reach the South Pole of Earth a century ago. The microprobes are due to smash into the ice of Mars on December 3rd as part of a bid to test flight advanced technology that could be used by future planetary surface microlanders. The naming of the probes was submitted to public contest won by Paul Withers, a U.S. graduate student studying to thin up our atmosphere of Mars. Withers said that Abbotson had explored the Northwest Passage before leading the first unsuccessful expedition to Earth's South Pole in 1911. Scott succeeded a year later, and his memorial inscription also applied to the aims of D-Space II, to strive, to seek, to find, not to yield. Greg Henry and his colleagues at Tennessee State University have confirmed that the star HD 209458 does have a planet orbiting with a period of about three and a half days. Previously, from the wobble in the motion of the star, the planet's mass was worked out to be about two-thirds that of Jupiter, the most massive planet in our solar system. Henry found that the star dimmed by about two percent. From the amount of dimming and its duration, the size of the planet moving in front of the star was worked out to be about two-thirds greater than that of Jupiter. From the previously known mass and its now-known size, the density of this object is only one-fifth that of water. This means that if one could find a big enough lake, the planet would float. The The Swedish Nobel Prize Committee have announced the winners of the 1999 Nobel Prize in Science. The Award in Medicine and Physiology went to Dr. Gunter Blobel of the Rockefeller Institute in the US for working out how protein molecules are able to move in and out of body cells. The Chemistry Prize went to Ahmed Zawel at the California Institute of Technology, also in the US, for using laser pulses t- to study chemical reactions. Professor Zawel is the first Egyptian to win a Nobel Prize, and he did not become a scientist until he was 38. Two Dutchmen, Martinus Veltman and Gerardus de Hoof at the Utrecht University in the Netherlands, won the Physics Prize. They developed a mathematical framework used in particle physics, and their work is also important in the development of quantum computers, which would be much faster than the computers currently used. <laughs>
3: You're listening to Discovery, the national science program broadcasting across Australia via ComradeSat. More than 200 female Australian scientists recently met in Melbourne for a conference on women achieving in science. Matt Woodford spoke to Dr Michelle Smythe, president of the CSIRO section of the CPSU, who opened the conference, about the issues facing women in science today and what the future holds. He begins by asking her about the ideas behind the conference.
4: Well, the idea is that women enter science in uh, numbers that are quite high, but after about five to ten years, a lot of them drop out, and we were trying to find out why women find it difficult to progress in science, and the other idea is that Many women are eminent in their fields, but nobody knows about them. And they're not often recognised as the experts in their fields, even though they've achieved just as greatly as men in similar fields have done.
5: Okay, so what were some of the findings of why women do drop out of science?
4: We had 10 workshops about this. I can't tell you the definitive answer to that. I think part of the problem is that women are not as aggressive as men in the political field. When, they, they, when they're at work, they do their jobs, and they don't enter into the politics of the workplace. Yep. And it seems necessary to do this to get on into uh, better positions and to become better known.
5: Uh, Would you say that the scientific environment is a forbiddingly masculine or patriarchal?
4: The fields that we were looking at were mainly science and engineering, and they are dominated by men. For example, I used to work in CSIRO, and only about 10% of the research staff there was women, Not, not the total people involved in research, but the research scientists, yet more women than 10 percent graduate from universities so somewhere along the line women drop out now one of the reasons they drop out of course is that they have children and they leave the workforce for a while and then they find it very difficult to get back into it
5: now there's also the issue of um, role models to encourage young women to get into science but are there lots or are there not lots? Like at a recent forum marking the International Year of the Older Person, that forum recognised the contributions of 25 Australian old women scientists.
4: Yes, well, well there are role models, but the, unfortunately eminent women scientists aren't well known to the public. So unless you're in the actual field, people aren't really well aware of eminent women scientists. For example... We, we all know Gus Nothal's name, yeah. and Robin Batterham and John Stocker and so on. But there are many women in charge of large and prestigious institutes whose names are not known to the public. Mm-hmm. And so our young girls at school probably don't know of these women.
5: But could these women say perhaps make themselves more known to the media and everything and um, that would start a domino effect of encouragement?
4: Yes, well I don't know why they're not better known to the media but one of the things we did decide at the conference was that women are going to have to get up and get out and do the things and be advocates for themselves but nobody's going to do it for them. So they mustn't sit back and take the second place that's usually allotted to them.
5: OK, and so what do you see happening in the future? Do you see, do you sort of see yourself that more women will become involved in science? Are you optimistic of the future?
4: I th- well, I think young women do become involved in science. It's when they, they go into the places of work that they find that they're not in the game. They don't know the rules of the game and no one will tell them. And this is one of um, the subjects that you referred to, wanting role models or mentors yep. so that they can see that it is possible to get on. And with a mentor, that person who's got more experience can tell you how to, how to play the game, as it were, mm-hmm. what, what is expected of you and what is really happening rather than what is said to be happening.
5: So um, you're sort of planning more of these sorts of conferences or a follow-up workshop in the future sometime where these could be more put into action?
4: We asked the delegates at the conference if they'd like another one, and they all agreed that they would, and we thought in two or three years' time we'd have another one.
5: Okay, and w- was this the first conference of its kind in Australia?
4: It's No, it's not the first conference of its kind, but it's probably the first conference that's been successful in in about the last 10 years. Apparently there were quite a few of these sorts of conferences about 10 years ago, and then when they tried to carry them on, there was no interest, Mm -hmm. and we were quite worried that we would not get enough people at this one, and we budgeted for 100 delegates, but we got over 200 and had to turn people back, so... Obviously, the interest is coming back again.
3: That was Dr. Michelle Smythe. Further information about the conference outcomes can be found on the web at www.vicnet.net.au stroke tilde CSIRO union slash or by phoning Pauline Gallagher in Melbourne on 039206 2288. That's 03 2288. And tomorrow night at 10:30, ABC TV's Lateline program will be profiling some of Australia's women in science. Still to come, thought machines and quantum computing.
1: You're listening to a historical episode of Diffusion Science Radio from November, 1999. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the community radio network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com.
3: This is Discovery, the science show brought to you nationally on Sat. A remarkable new interface between the mind and machine is being developed at the University of Technology, Sydney. The mind switch allows machines to respond directly to your thoughts. Ian Wolf began by asking Professor Ashley Craig to explain what the Mind Switch does.
6: The Mind Switch allows someone to control an electrical device totally with their brain their mind. Uh, They don't need to use hands or feet or anything. So it basically allows you, it gives you control over electrical devices with your mind. The Mind Switch technology consists of a band which goes around your head from which we uh, measure your brain signals. That is connected by wire, uh, electrical wire, to a little box which sits by your side, which takes the signal and analyzes it. Then that has a little um, RF component or infrared component on it, which then beams off the message to the device, which could be 100 metres away or 10 metres. But that's remote. So that's all it consists of. Or it could consist of a computer. You can activate it through a computer as well. It depends on a number of things. It depends on how you're using the signal from the brain. We can use it proportionally. We can use one, the one switch, we call it, the one mind switch, to do a number of things. We, for instance, we've got field trials at the moment with profoundly disabled people. And uh, I'll give you an example of one uh, one person with polio who's got to be in an iron lung at night. And uh, this person is... well, in our field con- control, this person was controlling her TV, turning it on. Uh, changing channels, changing sound levels with the mind switch, or within seconds.
1: Wonderful. So do you have companies banging down your door saying, can we sell this to the general public? Because surely everyone will want to be able to throw away the remote and just think at the TV or the computer.
6: Well, it sounds great, but it's not the case. Australian companies are very difficult to get to commit themselves. We've got people interested and companies interested in, in investment. The thing is with the mind switch, it's, it's still a little bit early to have an, an actual product on the shelf, and so we haven't had a lot of investors knocking at in our door or banging our doors down. But the idea extremely, is extremely appealing, and children especially just love the idea and it appeals to them. And it's great for science, for instance, just to, to give science that appeal that it needs. But it, it, it can be very fascinating, and breaking back or knocking down barriers or frontiers that's what, really what we're doing. But how long does it take to learn to use the mind switch? Well, that's one of the great benefits which our um, ourselves from a lot of our uh, co-researchers. Um, I'll give you an example. In Nature, the very prestigious journal recently, this year, early this year, there was a paper published in which two profoundly disordered people, disabled people with, I think, with stroke, um, learned to produce um, uh, words through, uh, through their using their EEG or brain signals. Uh, It took them, however, 300 hours of training and then 16 hours to produce uh, one paragraph. With the mind switch, there's no training necessary whatsoever. It's very simple, very quick. Um, Therein lies its simplicity, but there, of course, there are are, uh, problems in terms of complexity with that too. But the wonderful thing, if you're talking about uh, disability uh, applications, there's no training whatsoever. You just have to learn get to learn and use the technology, which is a matter of minutes.
1: So devices like Dr. Stephen Hawking's machine where he indicates words on a screen and letters on a screen, would that be something you could directly adapt to the mind
6: switch? Oh yes, yes, we could communicate with the mind switch because it's a zero-one uh, option at the moment and with more complexity than that, mind you. Yes, that could be the sort of thing we do. At the moment, we've we've restricted it to turning devices on and off. But it wouldn't take a lot to, uh, for instance, through a notebook computer, to uh, basically pluck out words and put sentences together very quickly. The general public might prefer to doing that to hunt and peck typing. Yeah, I think so. I think there's been a great interest out there. Uh, For instance, we've been rung up by the Army uh, for uh, applications of the smart soldier. Uh, where they're looking basically at communication devices. There are whole lots of applications, you know, the smart house of the future could well well have a mind switch or a similar device.
1: Where is your funding coming from?
6: At the moment our funding is coming from uh, two or three sources. Uh, The Motor Accident Authority has been a wonderful source of support for our research. In in the beginning when we started this research off, they were one of the few funding groups who uh, had faith in me. And uh, gave us that, that uh, break. Other than UTS, of course, University of Technology, which have been great too. They've been giving us a lot of support. But as we got more, uh, as we became better known, and we published and and uh, in this area. Um, the Australian Research Council has kicked in with some major grants, and uh, so we're not doing too bad at the moment. Uh, but oh, that's we. Terrific. Yeah, yeah. If you were to
1: make a prediction, how long do you think it would be before you had some product to market, whether it be zapping aliens on a on a screen instead of a joystick, or for or products for disabled people or remote
6: controls of some sort? Well, we have very soon. Um, we have some of our first products could be looking at being produced next year, early next year. We have been invited by the Olympic Showcase co- Committee, which is linked to the obviously Olympic Games which want to showcase innovative and creative Australian technology. We have been invited by them to submit a Mind Switch technology product. So we're hoping to submit that early next year or late this year. But we're hoping, uh, yes, we're hoping to get some products out. For instance, one idea that we've got is, of course, kids love it so much that we thought high schools, science departments would love a kit that was educational based and, and allowed kids or children, they're not children in high school anymore, but the, allowed the students to, to basically put together the devices and, and uh, set up experiments where they're using the mind switch. That's one potential device. Another is a great toy, which is mind switch based. And everybody wants one when I hear
1: As we approach the 21st century, it is not only the interface between man and machine that is changing, but the very nature of the machine itself. We have almost reached the limits of smallness of the transistors our computers rely upon. If we are to have smarter, faster computers, then we need to use an entirely new kind of technology. Quantum computers were first made practically in 1997. It turns out that Douglas Adams was being cleverer than he thought, when he had a good strong cup of tea as an integral part of a very smart computer. Physicists at MIT made a simple quantum computer out of liquid caffeine, manipulated by powerful magnetic fields. These computers have the potential to be a hundred billion times faster than transistor-based computers. Dr. Andrew Durack is the Assistant Director of the new Quantum Computing Centre at the University of New South Wales. He's working on making a dry quantum computer out of silicon, I began by asking Dr. Jurak to explain how quantum computers compute in parallel rather than exploring one path at a time as transistor computers do.
0: A quantum computer would be able to take in all those variables and go down every possible, possible uh, path and pick out what the correct solution was, even though there were millions upon millions of possibilities. And the reason for this is that a quantum computer is able to do what's called parallel processing. Now, Parallel processing has existed in, in um, computing for some time. The, for example, you can get two Pentium chips and sit them next to each other, and one chip can be doing one problem while the other chip's doing another problem. That's, that means they're calculating in parallel, and they can share out the workload. Now, um, some of the most powerful supercomputers, like for example, the type that are being developed at Los Alamos lab, have thousands of these um, very fast Pentium chips um, tied in together, calculating in parallel. Um, now the difference between a quantum computer or at least the quantum computer we're trying to build and one of these you know parallel computers with lots of chips is that our quantum computer is able to do all of those parallel c- calculations on just one chip. In fact it's possible with the individual transistor-like components, to be doing a number of calculations at once. Quite a difficult concept to understand, but it's tied into the basic way in which quantum mechanics works. Quantum mechanics being a um, the laws of nature that describe the behaviour of particles right down at the atomic level.
1: I then asked Dr Jurak about the code-cracking applications of quantum computers.
0: Cryptography uh, is based upon Uh, solving um, a particular problem which is um, uh, breaking up a big number into two smaller numbers which actually, although it may sound simple, is a very very difficult problem to do and it's the difficulty of that problem that means that certain codes um, are hard to crack and it would take for a very large number even a huge supercomputer potentially years to to, uh, solve that problem. But a quantum computer, because of certain ways in which it does calculations, could do that in seconds. And So instead of
1: several years for a, for a supercomputer to try and get a, a, an approximation of a weather forecast, how fast would a quantum computer go through all these simultaneous calculations
0: and work things out? There are some problems which you can show would take the lifetime of the universe to calculate for conventional computers. But on a quantum computer, it could do it in seconds. So what we're talking about is not just sort of when you go from like the Pentium to the Pentium 2 chip, you know, where you get, say, a factor of two or three speed up. We're talking about enormous speed up, something which is impossible on conventional computers. And I'm talking about even if we had the Pentium 2000 chip, right? Even if it it was a much, much, much improved version of the current computer chips that are around they still wouldn't be able to solve the problem because they do calculations in a different way.
1: So do you think we'll have these sort of things on our desks in 50 years time or are they only for special applications?
0: I think it's very likely that once quantum computers are developed that they will very likely take over from conventional computers because they will just have so much more power than conventional computers. It's, an inf- and I think 50 years time is a time scale on which there'll be no doubt that quantum computers will have surpassed conventional computers. I ended by asking Dr. Jurak, what
1: about artificial intelligence?
0: Um, people who have been trying to simulate intelligence using artificial intelligence um, have run into problems because of the enormous number of possibilities that exist when you try to create what are called neural networks. Because there are many possibilities that thought can take, It it makes computing artificial intelligence an incredibly difficult problem. And so people can only simulate very simple thought processes on conventional computers. But you'd see, of course, this is where a quantum computer would have an enormous advantage. And the inherent parallel computing of a quantum processor would allow artificial intelligence problems to be solved much more easily. And uh, it's one of my own personal um, viewpoints that that quantum computers could really have a huge impact in the area of artificial intelligence.
3: That was Dr Andrew Durack of the Quantum Computing Centre at the University of New South Wales, speaking to Ian Wolfe.
1: Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com.
3: That's all we have time for on this edition of Discovery. Contributing to the program were David Blank, Ian Wolfe and Matt Whitford. Discovery was produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER in Sydney with technical support from Lucas Curlin. Discovery is broadcast nationally via Comradesat by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. I'm Carol Oliver. Please join us for more science next week.